realized was that I was meeting on a regular basis very clever, well-intentioned people, very wealthy people, and they were very not smart about their giving. And it became a bit of a crusade of mine, if you like. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Really warm welcome to episode 35 with my guest, Emma Turner. She's been described as a doyen of philanthropy, a wealth therapist, incredibly articulate, and she's on a crusade to ensure people give smartly. Absolutely lovely to be with you, Mark. It took me a while to realise that you're actually in New Zealand uh, and here am I in London. And yet we are talking as if we were round the corner from each other like neighbours. Modern technology, who'd have thought? And I, I did a TED talk in 2018 and I had to come up with a topic for it. I was so overwhelmed at being asked to do a TED talk. I thought I've hardly barely got any, you know, kind of academic education um, and at the time we had been talking about smarter giving and what I'd realized at that point so I had been doing this job since 2008 so for 10 years and uh, you know a couple of other things in the field of philanthropy which we can talk about prior to that but what I realized was that I was meeting on a regular basis very clever, well-intentioned people, very wealthy people, and they were very not smart about their giving. And it became a bit of a crusade of mine, if you like, to ensure that no matter how much you were giving, you know, whether you were giving a relatively small amount or a large amount, that there were a few things that you uh, knew to do before you handed over that money and part of it was driven by something that had happened to me a couple of years previously where there is an expression the cobbler's children wear no shoes where I'd handed a large amount of my own money over to a charity and thereby you know ensued a story which you would think I would know better but I didn't and I did what many people do which is I chucked my heart out the way and the brain went in and said I'm going to fix this so I think my mantra really is that everybody can be a smarter giver and it then ends up being a much more productive, meaningful uh, gift, but also you realise the impact of what your money is going to achieve for the organisation you decide to give it to. Yeah, and it's incredible. I've seen it myself. Really smart people seem to leave their smarts at the door and you know they do things like you know, they don't carry out any sort of due diligence or even basic checks on the organisation they're supporting or the cause that they're giving to. What, what do you think is at the heart of that? What are those, are they sort of personal people's traits? So I think the thing is, I mean, I think the nice side of it is that, you know, we are emotional creatures um, and we are very trusting. I think, you know, the the charity brand, if you like, is, you know, trust us and we have a tendency to. And so I think, you know, as I said previously, we and charities use very appealing stories and photographs to kind of draw you in. And so our heart sort of goes, oh, you know, hang on a second, I could do something about this. 
And I think, you know, then when you look back over the last, let's say, 10 years, and I'm going to focus on the UK for a second, there have been an increasing amount of, you know, let's face it, bad press. Um, you had, uh, you had, well, you've had Kids Company recently. I shouldn't probably mention them by name, but I mean, it's all been in the papers. You had, um, you know, that lovely pensioner who died being hounded to death by charities. You had a whole thing about CEO pay in the sector. You then had the more recent scandals with, you know, people not behaving in the way you would expect them to in far flung parts of the world with the clients that they were meant to be helping. And the thing is that that actually has now started to have an effect because people read the newspaper. So I think we are less trusting. And so I think there is, and, and, and charities love the fact that we're not trusting, not consciously, but you know, here we go again, we're just gonna give money to you. So I think it's much better. And this is what the whole barriers to giving debate was about, you know, why don't people give or give more? And part of it is, is that charities actually need to do a better job at stewarding and engaging and transparency. There's 160,000 charities in the UK. So that's a lot. And about 70% of that have an income of less than 10,000. So the ones that we all see and know tend to be the larger ones. And it's just a question of actually having, is donors knowing what questions to ask and fundraisers knowing what information to give and there will be a more meaningful relationship and more money will then exchange you know over the river basically because mm. so i've seen somewhere that someone described you as the doyen of philanthropy or the doyen of giving so i think that, that was quite impressive when it comes to your own personal giving do you do you find yourself um sort of naturally mistrusting <laughs> or do you you know are you kind of <laughs> Are you emotional or are you actually do you practice what you preach and you're a smart giver? So I so I think the interesting thing about me and philanthropy was it was when I was halfway through my career at Goldman Sachs. So at that point, I had been a fundraiser for 10 years and I was five years into running Goldman Sachs' corporate giving. And part of my role was to run this amazing volunteering program every year to get everybody out to really understand, you know, the kind of the world that was, you know, at their doorstep. And we had a very good match giving program and someone had sent me in an application and I had to kind of sign it off. And I thought, hang on a second, Emma, you're sitting here and trying to encourage 3000 employees to do something. Who are you giving to? And it was a real light bulb moment. You know, it was that, you know, again, the cobbler's, the cobbler's children wearing no shoes. And so that's when I began to do you know, my own giving. And, and initially I focused on drug addiction and alcoholism. I have personal reasons for wanting to support that. And also that's what I'd fundraised for. And you know, it's way down the bottom of everybody's giving list. And then I think as I, uh, now what I do is we have a local community foundation that I support every year because they're doing extraordinary work on my doorstep. And so I know that I am supporting things, you know, not further than the end of my road. And I really like, you know, charity begins at home. That's about as close to home as you're going to get. Mm, yeah. And then I do, I'm supporting another local charity that works with children in schools. And then I typically have always gone on and supported drug addiction and alcoholism in some shape or form. I've switched charities. I've switched horses over the years. But these are organizations that I know and I know I not only know of, but I know them. And now I do make it my business to have a better understanding of the organization I'm going to give my money to. But then I always save, and I think this is really important, by the way, I always have a little, if you like, pot of money, which is for what I call my spontaneous gift. So a friend is running a marathon, something is happening, and I don't really need to know too much about it. And, and that, 
And I think, you know, during COVID, it was really important that if one was going to sort of suddenly turn one's attention to a food bank or, a, you know, or something that was really serving an immediate crisis need, that was not the time for kind of, you know, going through the accounts with a kind of pin. It was actually more about finding an organization that you really liked what they were doing and giving them money and not expecting too much of them because they had too much on their plates already. Yeah. So that would be my take on it. I totally agree. And, and you know, want the lights to still be on, uh, you know, as the pandemic sort of disappears off. So do, do you mind, not the topic of this conversation, but do you mind just sharing a bit about why drug and alcohol was a real focus for you? <laughs> Um, I think at this point in my life, probably, I, I'm not sure I would have shared it much early on in my career. But when I, if you look at my CV, there's a very interesting moment in it when I've gone from Vogue magazine when I was 18 to my early 20s, Women's Wear Daily, which was in Paris, you know, high end fashion. Then there was a bit of advertising. And then you will suddenly see that I'm doing yacht racing, which is a yeah. kind of weird kind yeah. of, you know, you think, well, OK, hang on a second. that How does that fit in? And what I'm happy to say is that in my late 20s, I flew pretty close to the sun, I think would be my way of describing it. And I got a little torched. And so I really had to uh, reconfigure my life. And drugs and alcohol had played a part in my getting too close to the sun. Um, and there was some of it in my family. So I was kind of witness to, to what addiction can do to loved ones. And I was incredibly lucky. I was 28. And for whatever reason, I was able to see which way my life could go if I stayed on that path or if I decided actually to take a different route, which meant really kind of uh, knuckling down, sorting myself out, uh, looking at kind of patterns of behavior, choices that I'd made and finding ways to make better choices um, I got a lot of help. I am a great believer that when you have any kind of crisis in your life that, you know, there is outside help to be had and grab it with both hands. I don't think I would have then had the life that I've had if I hadn't. Um, and I had to really learn to kind of be where my feet were and to, but, but consequently because of that and a lot of hard work, to be honest, uh, and, you know, self-help groups and therapists and all sorts of things. And I'm not ashamed of it because I think the more you talk about it publicly, the more it encourages people to get that help is that I certainly wouldn't have then had the career I had. So, so the drug and alcohol charity wasn't deliberate, actually. I came back to London and I was looking for a job. And, you know, my career has always been, I've never gone and looked for the next job. I've been incredibly lucky. Something has come along and it's kind of grabbed my attention. And someone said, oh, would you, you know, do you find, it was a Tuesday, it wasn't raining. Do you fancy being a fundraiser, Emma? And yeah. I thought, well, it's Tuesday and it's not raining and I kind of need something to do. And it happened to be for a drug and alcohol charity. But I think the reason I was, I was, I, I think at that point, I felt like maybe I could do something with a little more depth and a bit more purpose. And if I could be part of something that makes it possible for more people to get help like I got, then uh, I can't believe I'm telling you all this stuff, then um, that would be kind of something that would be my way of kind of giving back and actually saying thank you. So that's really why yeah. I ended up choosing that job. Fantastic. And that was for Sharp chemical dependence charity that was that a right? sharp yep, that, yeah yep, that. yeah and then that went on to merge with another charity and it's now called action on addiction and, ah, and I, uh, I know them yeah yes. yeah mm. so so that became they all they all they all they all clambered together after i left and actually it was a very smart move and, and they've done very well 
really uh, interest in fashion uh, by the look of it. And, uh, um, you know, Vogue, Condé Nast, um, you did a whole lot of different roles in that. Did you, from an early age, was fashion your calling? Again, you know, there I was, I was 17 years old. I had barely, I had a couple of O-levels and one A-level to my name and it became, and in those days, your parents didn't want you and you didn't want to be around them. So I came, so so I got an, inter- no, I mean, fashion wasn't at all, but I was looking for a job. I knew how to type. I mean, that was about it. And I was very lucky. I got an introduction to someone at Vogue and I went along for a job interview and by as luck would have it, someone had left the day before and they said, well, would you like to be a secretary? I mean, it was as simple as that. And I started work on my 18th birthday at on Vogue magazine and then sort of wheedled my way into the fashion department. I was never kind of on the high fashion side. I was more on the kind of admin side because that's what I'm really good at is kind of someone used to say, if you want five elephants in Trafalgar Square tomorrow morning at nine, call Emma and she'll organize it for you. It's kind of, <laughs> that's always been my thing. And so I was the one responsible for pulling all the shoots together, which kind of played to my strength because I love that kind of stuff. I couldn't have cared less about a skirt or a shirt or any of that kind of stuff. Um, so then I, and then I was, you know, headhunted to go to this extraordinary high fashion newspaper in Paris. And I don't know who they thought they were hiring but I got the job and it was quite extraordinary, you know, interviewing Mr. Saint Laurent, interviewing Lagerfeld. And I was way out of my depth, but I managed to hang on to the job for a year and did some extraordinary things. And then that came to a kind of a happy mutual ending is how I would put it. And I came back to London and then I was looking for work and I got work in advertising agencies. And then I went to the charity and then I got, you know, pulled out of the charity by Goldman Sachs, uh, which again yeah. was an extraordinary moment. I, um, how did that? How did that happen? How did you end up at Goldman well, Sachs? I was trying to get money from Goldman Sachs for the charity because some of their some of their senior guys had got involved in a fundraising event, and so I met the two women that were kind of doing the giving off the side of their desk, and they and and we didn't get any money for the charity, and they called me one night and they said, "Can we sort of ask you something?" And I thought they were asking me to help them find someone to do this job of pulling together their kind of giving. Anyway, so they they invited me up to Fleet Street for the one evening. So I went and I met this terribly nice guy for about an hour and a half called David. I can't remember his surname. And at the end of it, he said, well, hypothetically, when can you start? And I said, start what? He said, well, start work here. And I said, I thought we were having a chat. He said, no, I've just been interviewing you for an hour and a half, <laughs> which is kind of how Goldman Sachs does it. And I went, really? And he went, yeah. Um, I think we'd like you to come and work for us. I went home and I said to my husband, do you, think about, do you know anything about Goldman Sachs? He went, yes. I said, well, I think they're offering me a job. And he went, bloody take it, you know, for goodness sake. So I then had to meet a couple of other people. And that's how I went. I had no idea who they were and ended up being there for 11 years. So, And I think if I'd known that I was going for an interview, I probably would have been absolutely petrified. But I didn't. So I just chatted yeah. away like a songbird. Yeah. And so that was, was it their private wealth team that you no, joined? No, not at all. No, 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 not at all. I had a very different job. So basically I ran all their, all their giving for the firm. So whatever Goldman Sachs wanted to give of its own money to local charities, that was my job. It was, you'd call it citizenship now or corporate social responsibility, part of it. Now, I wasn't working with private clients at all. I was only, you know, doing what the firm needed to do with its own money across Europe and Asia and Australia and India and also I mean I just some I went to some wonderful places and saw giving in all of its entirety you know across the world from Europe all the way to 
Australia and Japan and learned an enormous amount and had so much respect for how different cultures give. And then I kind of ran out of road with them. You know, it's, a, it, it's an extraordinary place to work, but it's pretty exacting and, and they do want a lot of you. And I was finding it, you know, quite a lot at that point. And I was old enough to know that I have a choice here. And then I, Barclays were looking, uh, they had this idea about starting a philanthropy service for their private clients and another bank had already done it. And so they were thinking about it and they, they wanted to pick my brains. And so I went to, again, I went to have a chat and at the end of the chat, I thought, oh, I really, I really want to do this. And as the guy was halfway out the door, I said, he said, oh, you're nice to see you, Emma. You know, thanks for the chat. And I said, look, if you want someone to do this, I'd really like to come and do it. And I often talk about this in career talks. And he went, really? What, you'd leave Goldman to come here? Because nobody thinks anyone ever wants to leave Goldman Sachs. And I went, yeah. And he said, stay there. And literally within two months, they said, right, we want you to come and do this job. And so over the next few months, we negotiated when and how. And I arrived the day AIG hit the decks on the 1st yeah. of November, 2008. And I was stuck in front of a coat cupboard in a tiny desk. I'd sort of come from my, you know, ivory tower at Goldman with nine people outside my office kind of running around doing wonderful things. And I'm thinking, what have I done? Yeah. But actually, as we discovered in the following year, something extraordinary happens when the world tips the wrong way, which is there is a raising of a social conscience. Yeah. And I think people, you know, as much then as now, everybody in 2009 knew somebody that had been affected by what was going on, you know, children being taken out of school, mortgage repayments, you know, being difficult, people losing jobs. And so I think one becomes more attuned to the need around you exactly the same way that we've been all attuned to food banks, the homeless, hospices, healthcare, mental health, in a way that you're just not when everything is going right mm. and everything is kind of rosy. And so I think there were lessons learned. I think we are relearning a lot of them now. Again, I think we've had to be hit harder over the head, to be honest. I'm not sure why, but there's something going on, I think, beyond all of our kind of understanding. And I don't mean that in any kind of woo-woo way. I just think if we don't come out of this learning some lessons, then I think something's going to come along to try and teach us again. Um, yeah. yeah, so that has certainly done that. that, that, that was, yeah, and, it certainly and, has. In terms of one thing I've always thought about private wealth, you know, teams or departments or, you know, they add philanthropy as a service. And I've always wondered about the tension between, you know, delivering value for their clients but also um, around that part of it being attracting funds under management. And is there a tension between those two things? Like, you know, or, you know, you've got the, you've got your fund manager sitting beside you. Don't mention philanthropy. We want all their funds locked up in investments. So, so, you know, I think it's just worth bearing in mind. There are only five institutions in the UK that actually have a me. So it is a very, uh, it's still a very unique service and I think it takes a very enlightened firm to realize that the value add to the firm and the client relationship is worth hiring I mean I mean I'm I'm a team of one I do it all and I think that's you know that's right I mean if I'd wanted someone else to join me because I had to be in three places at once I'm quite sure that that you know could have been done so that was my worry when I arrived was and I think it was the banker's worry which is well she's going to come along and get my clients to give all their money away and yeah. so what you have to look at is kind of 
Uh, there are a number of, of benefits. So first of all, I mean, I'm a cost center, so I had to make sure that I could wash my face and it was worth kind of, but there are a number of, of ways that the business starts to see the value add. So first of all, you've got the clients that want to do philanthropy feel that you care about something that they care about. This is a completely free service and we have nothing to sell the client and I want nothing from the client. And they see that as rather refreshing. I had one client that said to me, I've never had a meeting like this in my entire life. You've got nothing to sell me. You want nothing from me. Do you know how nice that is? I spend my life in meetings where someone wants something from me. So I think that's really important. And if they are of a mind to do something philanthropic, it's really nice that someone has somebody that can help them. And we have to always tell them we do this because it's not, again, a mainstream service. So you look at that and actually what tends to happen, sometimes you get money from other places coming to the bank because of it it's not i mean some obviously but what goes out is usually de minimis compared to what you might be holding but also sometimes they go actually hang on a second you really care about me this is really nice i'm getting some really good advice about something that's important to me and so that actually strengthens the relationship it sort of tends to open a door into a part of the client's life that you don't get access to i'm sorry when you're discussing a mortgage or a structured product it's the, you know, it, it's the real kind of heart of who they are. And mm. then as, as the service, as is in the case of us, starts to gain credibility, you start to get attention. So we are known as, you know, probably front of the thought leadership pack in this space. You know, I get asked to do TED Talks, which is lovely for us, but also lovely for the firm. Get profiled in the FT as the Mary Poppins of the financial services industry. <laughs> you start to be the kind of go-to organization when people, when journalists want to talk about philanthropy. Um, so it, it it becomes more than just the kind of client piece. Um, and so the kind of holistic circle that you start to see happening. You know, when I look at what we did last year, you know, five podcasts with incredibly well-known people sat on panels and various things, interviewed for this, that and the other. And then the traction that you're getting with clients because they have a better feeling about the institution and are less likely at the end of the year when they go down the list of things that you're doing right. As I said to one senior guy, listen, you know, we do very well in this space. And so I think um, that's how the firm now look. And actually it's become a sort of, badge of honor for the bankers well we have a philanthropy service and we have mrs turner and we're very happy about that yeah i guess a lot of trust they have to you know you had to prove yourself and you had to be pretty impressive to gain the trust of your colleagues before they what let you into into pictures get you close to their you know top clients like do, you you must have been quite brave at times bold at times just <laughs> kind of went for it is that is that how you I, yeah, I mean, listen, I, th I think I think you earn trust and respect. And I think they could see that I was a grown up. I have a very good sense of humor, which has helped me enormously in life and particularly in this job. I know a lot at this point in my life. I've been in this in this business or this world for 30 years. I've accumulated an enormous amount of, of intelligence, not necessarily my own, but and I've gathered a lot of information. And I think what happened was in the early days, there were two or three bankers that took me to meetings and were kind of blown away, not so much by me, I don't think, but by what I got clients to kind of talk about. And they would come back and sit at their desk and go, you should get Mrs. Turner in a meeting with your client. And yeah. it was kind of attract. I mean, what the great thing in life is it was attraction rather than promotion. 
So I could tell them, you know, all the stuff that they needed to know, but they just had to then take the risk and do it. And so when one banker comes back and says to another, you should be getting a piece of this, there is no quicker way for a banker to then, I want a piece of that. Yeah. Um, and so suddenly yeah. it started to kind of ripple and everybody was like, I want a meeting, you know, I want you to come and meet my clients. And so that's how it really took, it took a while, but it eventually took yeah. off. And you, a really good day in the office like do you remember like some real proud moments or moment um and then maybe a really tough day in the office and do you order, answer those and whatever what do you want wow i can honestly say i've never had a tough day in the office i mean the one that always comes to mind was a call i got from a trust officer in jersey saying, I think it's too late, Emma, the client is 95 and she's leaving 16 million to do donkey to, to, to two donkey sanctuaries. Have you got anything to say? And I said, well, they better be good donkey sanctuaries. You know, I kind of, you know, you sort of have a moment when you think if only we'd been able to talk to her when she was 85 and I wouldn't have necessarily persuaded her not to give it to donkey sanctuaries. But there is that thing of, but maybe there could have been so much more that she might've been able to do with that money. So you get those little moments um, where you go and or you might get someone who is absolutely hell-bent on doing something and then your heart you know that it's probably not going to work out the way they want it to and all you can do is to tell them from my experience I've seen someone else do this and I just want you to be mindful of what the end result might be but I very rarely get very few of those um yeah, there's, I mean, I get this and I've had so, I mean, most of the meetings I have are meaningful because you end up, you know, talking about all sorts, there's, there's one couple and they, they were, they, they were both on their second marriage and they were having a wonderful time going around the world, enjoying themselves at the same time he was feeling kind of guilty because he put some money into a foundation and she knew quite a lot about giving money and they were kind of, and I just said, look, why don't you just really enjoy going around the world? And being married it's like philanthropy is always going to be here mm. and they kind of looked at me and went can we and so that <laughs> you know and I said yes I had another one with a with a mother who just had her third child and again was really struggling with I want to do something and I said look your child needs you more than philanthropy does right now you know you're never going to get this time again so why don't you just hang out with the kids for a couple of years and kind of come and see me and she came back two years later and she said you were so right. You just gave me permission to be a mom. And I said, and so that's part of my job is not about strong arming people. It's about helping them know what they need to do, to, to, what they need to know in order to be smart givers, but also to give them permission to be human beings. I mean, mm. it's, you know, and I think every, lots of people need that in life just to be a, you know, we're not human doings, we're human beings. And so I think that's a large I've been called a wealth therapist, and I think that's a pretty accurate title for some of the you know, conversations I've ended up mm. having with people because you end mm. up, you know, people really struggle with money. I mean, lots of people laugh when I say that, but there is a burden of wealth depending on how you've made it, where you are in your life, what you're wanting. It. it It's never what people think it is when you have a lot of money. And so I think helping people manage the burden of wealth is as much of my job as it is to help them be smarter givers. You know, what the future of giving looks like. 
or philanthropy. So, so, so I think digital is is, and and I think you know actually we we've just recorded a podcast called the State of the Nation, the charity sector one year on, which should come out in probably March with uh, someone from New Philanthropy Capital. And what she was saying is, you know, what digital has done in the last year, it has brought many, it, it is, it has brought many, many charities. It's fast tracked them to do things in a way that they were very slow in doing. And I think, you know, that's one of the one of the bright spots, if you like. I mean, because the charity sector is in a massive crisis, as you can imagine. Yeah. But lots of collaboration and the digital piece of it is is transformative for a lot of charities that have put their work they're fundraising online and they were dithering about doing it because of course anyone under a certain age is only going to do stuff on their phone in their hand that's how they do it so I think one has to be attuned to that I think the the problem you've got with the young people is that their, their attention span allegedly is like less than 10 seconds so you've got to be really nimble in kind of getting their attention and they have a global perspective whereas I think most of the people I'm working with who are in their late 50s, 60s, 70s, they've grown into a global perspective, but it's not, they didn't, they weren't born in a global perspective. So they're giving tends to be more um, old fashioned, isn't the right word, but more kind of UK based, more kind of uh, less, uh, they are much more risk averse. I think entrepreneurs and young people take risks because entrepreneurs do that for a living. They start a business, it fails, they start another one. So when it comes to their giving, they are they are willing to take more risk with their giving and maybe back a charity that others won't back because it's looking not quite so solid and safe and stable and, you know, been around for 200 years. Um, one would presume that the next gen is all about the environment, not necessarily. I think they're often uh, and it depends how involved they are with the family giving. I'm, I'm a great believer in family giving and I think that but yeah. I'm a great believer in making room for everybody around the table. So the parents, you know, may have some kind of legacy things they want to continue, but they want to they, they need to hear what their kids have got to say. and They need to allow the kids their freedom to support, you know, what they feel is important. I think, you know, mental health is a big thing amongst the next gen. I think probably education, I think disparity in any shape or form. I think they're very aware of that stuff. And so one wants to see that play out in their giving because my belief is that if you can combine passion and frustration and you find something that you're passionate about but you're frustrated about, that is going to make the most successful relationship with an organization, mm. whatever may be the field. So yeah. um, I think there's a lot of hope, actually. There's a, there's a, there's a, and there needs to be. You know, we need hope. Um, yeah. And I think there is a lot. here thinking how are Barclays going to replace Emma Turner because you've let it slip to me that you are retiring soon so so I am hanging up my work coat uh at the end of the summer as a very good friend of mine said the runway behind me is a lot longer than the runway in front and I want to leave the party when I don't want to leave the party and I want to leave the party when the party doesn't want me to go and we have found my successor. I am not able to name her at the moment, but she will start in the early summer and I will work with her for a couple of months to make sure that she's sitting comfortably in the seat before I go. But I think there comes a point in everybody's, listen, I've worked since I was 17, Mark. I've had one three-week holiday in all that time, apart from gardening leave between Goldman and Barclays. And I am ready 
to basically take control of my own time frame. It's like, you know, my, my, my life has been controlled by going to the office and I am absolutely ready to kind of take control of every day um, as being my own. And so, and we want to do a bit of traveling. And so that's, that's, that's the reason why it just, it, it's the right time. It's absolutely the right time. Fantastic. Um, well, I look forward to um, maybe meeting that appointment. And tell me about Geraldine Stoltz. Ah, wow. So Geraldine Stoltz was the woman that my father left my mother to marry. He met her in New York and she became my stepmother when I was 10. I met her for the first time in 1966. I can remember it like it was yesterday. And it was an extraordinary it was an instantaneous uh, love for each other. She, she became probably the most significant person in my life. She was running a store called Henry Bendels in New York. She was one of the first big career women. Um, she discovered Andy Warhol. She was working for a shoe company and she wanted to spice up their advertising. And she found this funny little graphic artist called Andy who drew all the shoes for the shoe ads. And that was one of her wonderful, you know, amazing claims <laughs> to fame. And she went on mm. and ran this extraordinary department store, which uh, she brought European fashion to New York. And, she, and so, and she stayed in my life right up until the day that she died. And she was an extraordinary influence on me because she was, as I said, one of the first big successful career women of her time. But she absolutely loved me unconditionally. And coming from an upper middle class English family where most things are conditional, um, she, she saw me through my darkest times. She saw me get married. She adored my husband. He adored her. And I miss her hugely. And she left me a foundation, which I didn't know about at the time in her will and I was pretty annoyed actually because she left me a nice little chunk of change but it wasn't anything like what was in this foundation <laughs> and I'm like hang on a second here lady could mm. we not have kind of tried but actually having got over that and it's a very good story to talk to clients about you know for goodness sake tell your children what you're going to do in your will don't surprise them um I now have the absolute wonderful job of giving her money away to charities Great. in and around New York. And I'll be able to do that probably, well, until at least I'm, I'm we're, we're going to spend it out. We've decided to spend it out because there's nobody after me that knew her the way that I did. But I think we've honored her legacy incredibly well. So I'm very happy yeah. about it. I think, I think she'd, as I often say, would she clap or would she slap? Would she clap because she's happy or would she slap my wrist and say, honey, you should never have done that, which is a great expression. So we'll see how it goes. Oh, brilliant. Fantastic. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to connect and um, yeah, enjoy retirement and uh, it'd be good to stay connected. Um, but yeah, Emma Turner, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mark, talking to you today and I hope the rest of your evening goes well. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.